You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. Waterloop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to talk to you for just a minute about High Sierra showerheads. I use them in my house because they're a water-efficient fixture, but I'm a big fan for other reasons as well, including their design and construction. They're made of solid metal. So this High Sierra showerhead I have in my hand right now, you can tell that it's a quality well-made product. Unlike the vast majority of shower heads, which involve a lot of plastic in their construction. And that's something we need less of, right? Less consumer products with plastic in them. The other awesome thing is their nozzle design. It's a unique patented nozzle that's not going to clog like so many other shower heads. The other thing about this nozzle is that it will work in low pressure. You'll still get a strong, powerful, but water-efficient shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking about the Mississippi River and specifically Arkansas for this episode. Very happy to be joined by Jason Milks. He is Delta Projects Manager with the Nature Conservancy of Arkansas. Jason, thanks for jumping on. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks, Travis. Yeah, so we got to chat a bit before this this podcast. I'm really interested to talk about all things Arkansas and water and Mississippi here. Uh, could you talk a little bit first about the relationship between the Mississippi River and Arkansas? You know, what what uh, what does the Mississippi River mean to Arkansas, and what does <laughs> Arkansas mean to the Mississippi River? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the Mississippi River is the eastern border of the state of Arkansas, and we share that border with Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee. It is um, also the lifeblood of the agricultural region of Arkansas. So we have agriculture across the state, but row crop agriculture in particular is um, concentrated in the eastern third of Arkansas, which is uh, geologically, the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. Um, so it's a heavily um, industrial row crop um, area of Arkansas. It's the 
row crop agriculture is the number one economy in Arkansas. And so the, to be nestled in the historical geologic floodplain in the Mississippi River is not a small thing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's also a very culturally distinct region. It's the Delta, as we call it, um, shares that same geography with Mississippi and Louisiana. It's, it's yeah. In in addition to just farming, it's also blues. It's tamales. It's ducks. It's a whole cultural, you know, um, culturally distinct region of the country. You know, I I haven't really personally spent really time in that that area there. You know, I've spent time down in New Orleans and kind of that southern Louisiana, but I'm really interested to get out there and uh, and travel around a little bit. So hopefully, post kind of pandemic here, I can I can do that. You can show me some of these spots. Um, you know, I've seen so much on social media and the news about just uh, water in Arkansas, and it seems like there's a lot of fun to be had and a lot of beauty uh, throughout the throughout Arkansas. Uh, when it comes to water and, and that Mississippi area. One of the things that, that jumped out uh, at me is if you look at, at Google Earth or the satellite version on Google Maps, you know, uh, you see just like this big, huge, unforested swath running down the whole, you know, that whole eastern corridor of, of Arkansas and, and even really starting up, I think, maybe at St. Louis and running down. What, what, what is that there? Yeah, well, that's you've described what is the Mississippi, what we call the lower Mississippi alluvial valley. So essentially, from Cairo, Illinois, uh, south to the confluence of the Mississippi and the Atchafalaya, is really this what we're referring to is this delta region. But even further down to the, the coast of Louisiana, um, you would consider it to be you know the lower Mississippi alluvial valley. This is a um, it's really it's a it's a geological um, area that's that's been created from originally the Ohio River flowed through this part of the world um, and now the Mississippi it's it's terraced over you know millions of years so you've got um, the the active floodplain is much less than what you see across there but it's you know approximately twenty four million acres in size across the three states. I think Arkansas has approximately 8 million of that. And historically it would have been um, large bottomland hardwood forests, um, a lot of swamps, a lot of cypress, you know, lined rivers and and low lying areas. It floods uh, frequently even today. Um, And that's part of the reason why it's such an important agricultural region is the soil is was highly laden with, you know, overland flooding sediments made for extremely rich soil. Mm. And it's, it was developed, began um, significant development in the late 19th century. And by the mid 20th century, you had several million acres of row crop, particularly cotton. And then um, rice um, and soybeans were introduced uh, mid mid 20th century. And now Arkansas produces half of the rice in the United States alone. So it's oh, wow. a couple million acres of rice farming, a couple million acres of soybean farming, five, five to 600,000 acres of cotton farming, all sort of embedded in this um, old floodplain that still has 
a lot of a lot of wetland in it. Hmm. So what does it mean for the river and the other, you know, waterways in that in that area to have this, you know, 24 million acres, I think you said, of, of agriculture going on? Well, I mean, honestly, the, the agriculture is the economic engine for, for that region. I mean, it's a historically, economically depressed region outside of agriculture. That's, that's what the, the communities and the people living in that region rely upon. So I don't, I don't want to minimize that. But, yeah. you know, obviously the development of that industry has some environmental trade-offs. And um, there's been a lot of alteration, a lot of land clearing, obviously, if you have 24 million acres of forest. And now there's probably um, collectively a million, two million, you know, somewhere across those three states of forest remaining. So that's a whole lot of impact. Um, the rivers are largely, the smaller rivers have largely been channelized to expedite drainage. Um, and that comes with nutrient runoff. It comes with sediment in the rivers. Um it has, ex, you know, say it's sort of accentuated some of the flooding in some regions because you've got a, a floodplain that's now developed into farmland and in some cases communities. And so those are, those are hit harder um, by flooding than they would have been if, if they were just forest. So there's, you know, it's, it's an important economic engine for sure, um, but it's, it's increasingly apparent that we're having to live with some of the environmental consequences of that development. Yeah. So I, I totally get that, that agriculture is so important. We, we have to eat, we've got to feed our country. You know, this is these, these people depend on farms for their lives and livelihoods. I'm a, I'm a big fan of farms, love them, grew up across from one. Um, what's, what are some of the efforts to try to deal with the impacts on the river from agriculture, you know, the, the sediment, the nutrients, um, how, how do you, you and others there try to, you know, keep these people going with their lives and livelihoods, but also try to reduce the impacts on, on the Mississippi? That's a great question. Yeah. It's, um, I would say that the conservation movement has really evolved over time where I think, uh, early on, we were interested in protecting what what forests and wetlands remained um, throughout the the sort of economic development of agriculture. Now we 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 are act proactively uh, engaged with agriculture producers to help um, identify efficiencies in water use, uh, particularly um, groundwater use. That's that's crucial to agriculture production in this region. Um, but we overuse the aquifer's ability to recharge. So we find um, win-win solutions with agriculture producers. If we can, uh, the Nature Conservancy can partner with a farmer and put a, a timer on a well that saves water and at the same time saves money for the producer, then we see that as a win-win. So we, we set up projects Lots of stakeholders, federal governments, state governments, farmers, um, even supply chain companies set up, um, you know, projects that identify where those where common ground can be made and realize that, you know, for for this region to remain um, in a productive economic engine, we're going to have to adapt um, to some of the challenges that the environmental 
um, degradation presents. So if you've got you know, losing groundwater, if you've got uh, stream and nutrients so heavily in the, in, excuse me, sediment and nutrients so heavily in the stream that it has a negative effect on flooding and, and biodiversity, then those there's regulations, you know, involved that um, put limits on producers on what they can do. So we want to find, you know, environmental solutions that that allow farmers to continue to be farmers, but recognizing that um, that we can we can find ways to to do conservation at the same time, and often in a way that that makes the sustainability of the farm um, better you know, for the landowners. What has been the the trend or the reaction among the agriculture community to, you know, the environmental community and others, you know, trying to encourage uh, some of these best practices and, and address some of these issues. You know, um, I know that it's a, there's a lot of tension involved in that, right? Cause they're just understandably really trying to get their, their farms doing what they need to, but what's, yeah, what's, what's the, uh, the trend, I guess, or how are things going? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, agriculture is hard work. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a it's a risky business in the best of times. Um, when we are in an environment of increasing rain and, and flooding, this just makes it more challenging. Um, conservationists understand that we recognize that those um, challenges have consequent environmental impacts as well. So we're interested in, in working together to find these solutions. But I think in my experience, you know, most farmers consider themselves stewards of the land. Most of them are multi-generational. You know, their, their grandfathers or great-grandfathers started, you know, the farm in most cases. And they want, they, they want their children, their families to be successful farming as well. But in order to do that, the land has to remain productive. They can't they have to be good stewards of their land in order for that to occur. So they're interested in maintaining good water. They're interested in maintaining their topsoil. It's in the interest of their, of their production. Um, I, where I think a lot of, a lot of fear and trust, um, you know, erodes comes from a heavy handed top down approach. You know, here's what you're going to do sort of um, engagement with producers. And we found you know, the Nature Conservancy and, and many of the partners that we work with on the ground, engaging, building trust, having common sense conversations with farmers and finding those solutions, letting them be a part of the solution, right? And understanding what their decision matrix, you know, over a 12 month period on a farm really is. What are they, what are they concerned about? Understanding their perspective and, and identifying where conservation can be a useful tool is an important strategy for building trust and, and getting the benefits to both constituents. Mm -hmm. um, regulations have a tendency to be not, uh, not right sized, you know, they, they can, they can be overarching and have unintended consequences. I think we're trying to find those really understand, you know, the decisions on the ground and, and make choices that, you know, are more um, informed by the people working on the land. Yeah. I was wondering if you could share maybe a few 
uh, more examples of success stories or positive approaches to con conservation that have worked for both water and farms? Yeah. Um, one of the greatest success stories I can tell um, has to do with a federal program that the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service administers. It's called Wetland Reserve. Um, it started back in the mid-90s. And it's an easement program where the USDA provides um, a financial incentive to a farmer to essentially retire a frequently flooded piece of ground in exchange for um, reforestation and wetland conservation on that property. Um, the, the, the benefit to the farmer is if, if they've inherited land or purchased land that they didn't realize flooded so frequently that it's difficult to make a crop on, it's not serving them any productive value. And so this USDA program, um, it's competitive. Landowners apply. If they, um, if they meet the requirements and are in priority areas for conservation, they can receive um, you know, funding to retire that acreage and then trees and wetlands are built in its place. And in most cases, those easements are perpetual and the farmer ends up having a, a nice forest and wetland um, on their on their property that they can recreate in or, or sell if they choose or, or re lease for recreational uses if they want. And then they don't have the, the same environmental impacts that they would if they were trying to farm it. And it was flooding every year. Um, our, that program has been so successful Um approximately 700 and probably it's probably closer now to eight or 900,000 acres have been enrolled in this wetland easement program since the mid nineties. So it's, it's added almost a million acres of bottomland hardwood forest and wetlands to a, a region that desperately needed it um, since the mid nineties. And it's a win-win for landowners. It's a win-win for the government and provides, you know, habitat for migrating waterfowl. It's, provides an economic um, opportunity for, for leasing to duck hunters, you know, when in between uh, crop seasons. So I, it's something the Nature Conservancy has been involved with uh, for a long time. And we, we work very closely with USDA and landowners to ensure that the, the right properties are being enrolled um, for the most, for the most benefit, but it's, it's significantly oversubscribed, meaning mm. that, you know, every year, USDA has to turn down nine applications for every application they fund. So it's a, it's a extremely supportive, you know, program from a landowner perspective. And, and it's one that's doing a lot of good on the landscape. What's, what's needed to, to accept more of those applications, just funding mm -hmm. probably from Congress. Yeah. You know, that's a great question. Funding's always better, right? If you know, you know, the farm bill is, is been, described as the greatest private land con you know, conservation tool in, in the United States. And I think that's true. Um, it's, it's, it's roughly, uh, you know, a $60 billion a year program and, and approximately 5 billion of that is spent on conservation. Yet we do some of the most important work in the U S through that program. Um, the wetland re easement program that I just described, it's, it's funded at a $500 million a year um, national budget and could easily spend twice that. <laughs> mm. um, 
Is that possible in Congress to, to just double a program? Not likely. Um, we'll, we'll, we're going to continue to work incrementally to increase funding where we can. I think another opportunity um, is to just increase the sources of, of capital and financing available for those kinds of projects um, that are not necessarily government funded. Mm. There's a, um, there's a lot of companies, there's a lot of um, interest right now in reforestation and mitigating for climate change. Um, there's a number of, you know, markets like carbon and, and uh, wetland mitigation and nutrient credits that could be used to finance uh, some of this conservation from private entities um, that have an interest in, in doing that. We certainly know, as I've described, that there's there's a large base of landowners that are interested in this type of conservation, um, but outside of their, um, you know, participation in government programs, there's not enough funding to get those lands enrolled. So I think we've got some opportunities um, to to increase the uh, conservation finance in in the Delta. That's in addition to the farm bill. Farm bill. Yeah, very interesting. That those those flood prone and, and less productive croplands, this, this kind of conversion is, is basically the best thing to do or really the only thing to do, the only solution uh, in those situations? I think it's, I personally think it's the best solution. You know, if, yeah. if it's your farm, you may not consider it the best solution, to right. be fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a, a lot of this land um, has historically been protected by levees um, that, that worked very well um, for a number of years. Um, but weren't necessarily designed um, to to exist without you know maintenance. They weren't necessarily designed to prevent um, the frequency of the of the flooding that we're experiencing. So it's a very expensive option, um, particularly when we have a uh, a global need for increased reforestation, uh, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, if we can, um, you know, if, if we can repurpose some of this land that's not working um, commercially for agriculture and put that into a condition that, you know, improves our fishery in the Gulf of Mexico, reduces carbon, um, provides waterfowl, the additional habitat, then we can use the revenues generated from those other uh, economies to not only make, you know, the, the people whole, from a financial perspective, but the, the planet in a better situation as well. I know that the floodplains is a, is a big deal along the Mississippi river, right? There's, there's whether it's, uh, you know, urban or cities and towns that have been developed in floodplains or farms that have been developed in floodplains. Um, what's, what's just the overall approach, especially through that, that, you know, lower Mississippi area, the Delta on, on protecting or restoring natural floodplains? I, I think the, the, the overarching approach is collaboration. Mm. This is really, um, it's really in, in the interests of many stakeholders. So finding those partnerships and aligning where maybe a conservation mission and an agricultural mission um, can find common ground. That's really the approach. You know, I, I think it's, I heartily believe it's in the best interest of, of all of us, um, to, to make the right decisions on this land. And, and our approach has always been collaboration, even if that means creating policy 
you know, changes. We're often doing that in, in collaboration with agriculture partners, cities and towns, you know, uh, counties, federal governments. It takes a, it takes a, um, a true partnership to really find those win-wins. And I think that's the approach that the Nature Conservancy is trying to facilitate. Sure. Uh, I want to ask you about a couple places here. Uh, we talked about this one also, the White River Refuge. So if you, again, mm-hmm. if you look at that Google Earth or the, the satellite view on Google Maps, you know, you, you have that big tan carved out area, but then you have this big, very big noticeable strip of, of green. What's, what's the White River Refuge and what, what, what's the role of that? Yeah, the White River Refuge is just a fantastic um, place. It's, it's, um, it was really, you know, maybe controversial at the time to some, but visionary in its protection as in the 1930s, actually, it was a, if I'm not mistaken, I may have my facts slightly wrong. It might've been the, it might've been the first national wildlife refuge in Arkansas. And, um, it's, it's about 165,000 acres now, it's anywhere from one to five miles wide, 90 miles of, of the lower White River. And it was protected um, by, by the U.S. government, like say, before it ever had the opportunity to be developed. And it's, it's really the foundational piece of where we build off our other conservation you know, estate to have that block of woods that runs essentially 100 miles upstream from from the Mississippi along the White River, um, really has given us the 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 foothold in conservation that we can build off of, and 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 that's what it's it's done. Uh, Mid '80s, the Cache River National Wildlife Refuge was created, which is main tributary to the White in the Delta, and now that that conservation estate is over seventy thousand acres. So we've gone up another hundred miles of the main tributary of the White, and Many of the uh, easements that I talked about in the USDA program are built, you know, in the in the floodplains of those two major streams. So it really has, you know, added value to and expanded the the impact uh, over time. Yeah. Well, I was going to also ask you about the Lower Cache River because I think that that's a success story. So is that what's happened there? Is that that's been kind of protected? And yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the cache was, you know, is also slightly controversial. Anytime you've got agricultural interests, uh, you know, uh, in a ch- challenged by conservation interests, there's there's potential for controversy. And the Cache River is not an exception. Um, back in the '70s, it was um, it was slated for channelization um, to facilitate drainage for agricultural land, and it rallied a lot of conservation support and uh, eventually defunded the channelization project after seven miles were completed and uh, initiated was that was really the catalyzing um, event that initiated the Cache River National Wildlife Refuge, which again, as I said, sort of drains right into White River National Wildlife Refuge. So this it's starting Nature Conservancy and a lot of other game and fish partners were involved, but um, through a series of land deals and federal programs that refuge is now 70,000 acres and um, really was the, it was the wake up call, I think among conservationists that, Hey, we know this place is special, 
But if we don't take deliberate efforts to protect it, it, it could all be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's been the, the, um, the rallying cry for a lot of conservationists. Um, and it's a beautiful river. I mean, Cache River and its tributaries is where um, Cornell University and a lot of scientists were on an active search for the ivory bill woodpecker about 10 years ago. Maybe it was even longer than 15 years ago. Um, so ancient large stands of bottomland hardwood forests still remaining along the river bottom. So it's, it's a beautiful place. Mm, sounds awesome. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask you about was <clears throat> unpaved roads. You know, you have a lot of these areas and you've got networks of unpaved roads out there and that can lead to sediment and other runoff is- issues. Um, but I think there's a little bit of a success story there that I was hoping you could share. Yeah, yeah, I'm. There's. Pro, I have some colleagues that I work with that might be able to tell it um, more succinctly than I can. But you know, it, it was essentially identified um, that unpaved roads, which there's you know hundreds of thousands of miles of in Arkansas, which is mostly a rural state, mm. unpaved roads were a significant source of sediment into rivers. Um, not surprisingly, we get like 52 inches of rain a year. And so if that's hitting a, a gravel dirt road, that water is going to drain downhill into a stream. And it takes a lot of, takes a lot of that gravel and dirt with it. Um, of course, you know, these small headwater streams often f- they can fill up with sediment, reduce habitat for biodiversity. So we identified gravel roads as being a significant objective. Um, we work with the county, um, county judges, which is the administrative, um, leader of a county in Arkansas whose responsibility is to maintain these roads, um, which are often impacted by this rainfall. They have to spend county appropriated dollars, state dollars to repair these roads. And we just saw it as another example of a win-win where if if conservation could come in and, and help work with these counties to design these roads to erode less, not only would it um, reduce the amount of sediment getting into the area streams, but it would be less expensive for the counties to maintain. And they just didn't have to go back and fix potholes and, and eroding roads. They were going to save money. Um, so we worked with some, we worked with some funding uh, provided to us by um, some industry partners and the state of Arkansas and developed some demonstration projects uh, brought in the Arkansas Natural Resources Commission, which is part of Arkansas Agriculture, and eventually drafted a bill that su- provided um, state funding, um, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, to be distributed to the counties um, in a in a competitive grant process to do these um, road best management practices that will, again, make the roads safer and less costly to maintain, but at the same time keep sediment out of our area rivers so yeah yeah, it's a great it's a great story that that definitely is what that's a great infusion of of resources there too that that went into the road maintenance good stuff well jason uh like i said earlier on um i'm really looking forward personally to myself to getting out to arkansas and and uh you know exploring some of these places and uh sounds like the the white river refuge should be on toward the top of the list and checking out the water there but thank you for sharing uh all this information and perspective really appreciate it yeah, you're very welcome, Travis, and I expect you to 
give me a call when you get in town and we'll, we'll, we'll check it out together. No doubt. All right, Jason, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code Waterloop at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.